HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live every Tuesday from around 12 to 12.45 from the back of Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, hey, Jack, our, uh, our engineer Jack in the booth, as always. My headphones appear to be not working. Ah, thank you. Joined, as usual, in the station with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez, Cooking Issues Hammer and uh, usual uh, resident meanie. The just called back. What? The caller, our caller called back. Hello, caller. You are on the air. Hi, Dave. Just a quick question about pecans specifically. Um, since it's a time of year where you can get a whole unshelled pecans, I like to get a bunch of, you know, pecans and other bulk nuts and crack them myself. And bulk, bulk nuts. It's either the pecan itself or that reddish stuff that's inside, like the pith, sort of. Right. Right? Something just. It's bitter and mouth dry and, and just kind of not acidic, but it just really dries out my mouth. What's up with that? All right. So the skin of nuts like that, and pecans is one. The one I think it's been more studied uh, is uh, walnuts. The skin, the kind of the silvery, the, the uh, reddish, brownish skin around it has a lot of uh, tannins in it that are going to dry out your uh, mouth and can be bitter. Uh, and the same it goes true for a lot of nuts, which is why, for instance, uh, when you use hazelnuts, you often uh, heat them briefly and then rub the skins off. So, you, c- I mean, pecans are kind of a pain. I don't really see a lot of recipes where you're supposed to uh, take the skin off of a pecan. Um, have you ever seen that in a recipe? I've never seen that in a recipe. No. No. Uh, me neither. But it, the strange thing about uh, this phenomenon is that, and I know more about walnuts with this, is that different cultivars of uh, walnut will have radically different uh, astringency uh, and bitterness associated with that skin layer. So every, you know, it all depends on exactly who you're getting it from, um, et cetera, et cetera. You could try uh, to a hot roast and rub between towels. Any percentage of that skin that you get off of there is going to um, decrease that perception. The downside is, is that 
it's not going to look like a pecan anymore for for you know for what people are are used to doing. Have you noticed this specifically in a in a person that you're buying bulk from? No, I just usually get them you know diamond diamond or whoever just in a bulk bag. And when I do the pecans, I really notice the bitterness. I don't really notice it so much for the other nuts, oddly enough. Yeah, do you uh, not even for walnuts, huh? No, well, I mean a little, but yeah. pecans like sometimes they just really. Zing me or yeah. whatever. Well, you know, a lot to, like so. Uh, you know, we used to make a lot, and hopefully we will again. Uh, pecan oil and pecan butter in uh, mm. in a centrifuge, and <laughs> the bottom layer of that has all of that stuff that you are talking about. The uh, uh, you know because uh, the the skin layer settles to the bottom when you're centrifuging it, uh, and so you know that that's one way to 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 get rid of it. Do you live in the south? I mean, what I would do is uh, search out a, you know, a really like the, I looked online once because we were looking into selling nut oils at school a couple of years back, and I found a couple of very I can't remember their names unfortunately off the top of my head, but a couple of super high uh, quality producers, uh, you know, that will give you fresh this year's crop right when they get it, uh, and just I'm sure loads higher than whatever the commercial stuff is, and strangely the prices weren't that bad. You know what I mean? So Very cool. Yeah, you might want to look into that. And then the the folks that I spoke to on the phone uh, were, you know, and this is the good thing about dealing with real people is they actually grew the darn thing. So if you tell them your uh, concerns, they can they could probably steer you the right way. So does age affect it also? Well, uh, age. I, I don't know about age and. Um, astringency. I mean, obviously, nuts as they age get rancid, uh, and you know they they tend to not be as good. I mean, um, and that's why you know it's always best to vacuum pack, uh, you know, in cans so you don't crush them too much. But it's always best uh, best to vacuum pack um, things that are high in oil content. So a lot of nuts when they're commercially uh, produced are vacuum packed for that reason, or, or nitrogen flushed, or any one of a number of things you can do to remove the oxygen so that you don't have uh, oxidation problems. So nuts are definitely unstable. I mean, I'm sure you've had, um, you know, you've had some nuts sitting out for a while, and you try to get the, they, they turn stale, obviously, and then you try to uh, get the crispness back by uh, roasting them for a minute, letting them cool down, and the taste just isn't the same. <clears throat> it's just they've either like gone stale permanently or gone rancid because they have such a high oil content, you know? Yeah. Very cool. Do you think this is anything like when you get a funky batch of pine nuts? You know, you get that pine nut mouth condition. Oh, you probably know, not. I haven't. I haven't researched what that is. I think that's probably something uh, like very specific, and I don't know. That might be, and I don't know anything about it, so I, I you know, I hesitate to speculate. But uh, for instance, I'm told that it's a fungal uh, problem, like a bad pistachio, and that those are actually extremely toxic because of high levels of aflatoxin uh, that are uh, pleasant. And anyone that's ever bitten into a bad pistachio knows that it's like one of the most horrible things that could possibly happen to you. So for, definitely don't eat that. No, don't eat that. In fact, uh, <laughs> we, we used to make a pistachio. Uh, Oil and butter, uh, and what we we you know at the school we would get these uh, three pound uh, tins of nuts right from a reputable uh, person. And so uh, one time I had an intern make a batch of pistachio butter with it, and they just threw the tin into the uh, into our grinder and then into our centrifuge, and the stuff tasted awful. Uh, then I then uh, from then on I said, hey, look, you have to throw all of the pistachios onto a sheet. A uh, big sheet tray, and you have to look at them all. And we took out all the ones that had yellowed, 
you know, with age that weren't green anymore, all the ones that look shriveled, and the stuff tasted great. So, you know, I know with pistachios, they're extremely fragile, uh, you know, and, and most suppliers, you know, if you're buying uh, bulk shelled nuts, they don't, they're not giving you the, they're not giving you necessarily 100% of the best, even if they're a reputable manufacturer. Mm. You know, okay. It only takes a couple bad nuts to really ruin things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyway, good luck with that, and let us know how it works out for you. All right, thanks a lot, Dave. Keep bringing the awesome. <laughs> thanks. All righty, so let me see. Uh, I am I'm late as usual, and uh, <clears throat> we are being held to our time today because there's a live show coming on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, and so I'm going to read the promo after the first break. I'm just going to start going into questions. Okay, Andy writes in, Hey, Nastasha and Dave, I recently acquired a massive 21-pound free-ranged aged country ham from Nancy Newsom at... Uh, her name's Nancy Mahaffey, actually. From Nancy uh, Mahaffey at Colonel Newsom's Ham. And uh, there's a, a bunch of cursing about how delicious it is. Holy effing sugar honey iced tea delicious, which it is. I actually happen to like that ham a lot. Had incredible marbling. Uh, I want to figure out a way to get the best yield from the ham while eating it over a few months. Uh, start into the less meaty side of the ham. Uh, less meaty side would be the, you know, the, they calls it the forward top side, I think. Uh, Serrano style, i.e. Uh, along the length. But I'm thinking about boning it out and bonding it back together. Prosciutto style and then slicing it across the face of the ham. I practice deboning on a smaller home-cured ham, so I think I've got good butchering method, but how does the home cook press and bind it back together? I assume some form of meat glue. Any recommendations for uh, which style to use, etc., uh, etc.? Et the bone will leave a big hole. How do I ensure that I can uh, press the, uh, the hole completely shut? Uh, as a side note, um, this ham is much thicker than either the serrano or the prosciutto, but I can't think of a way that would affect the preparation. Uh, first of all, a couple notes. Uh, for those of you that don't have, uh, don't eat American country hams, uh, Colonel Newsom's hams out of uh, Kentucky is one of the, my favorite producers. They've been producing for a long, long time. Their recipe is several hundred years old. Uh, Nancy Mahaffey is the current proprietor and cure master of that place. Uh, they have a distinction that they uh, only cure one time a year at the traditional time in the winter, uh, and and then the hams are aged however old they are. She sometimes has hams that are over a year old, but in general, you can judge the age of the ham based on how long after the winter it is right now. So the hams that she has left over now are a year old, if you can get them. They're good. Uh, another thing is that she has been working with uh, Heritage Foods, our parent peoples, uh, to get some high, very high-quality um, uh, ham in that has a lot of marbling. So she's been doing that. I think Benton's has been doing that. Benton's hams and uh, Edwards hams. And I've had I haven't had Nan- I've had a little bit of Nancy's. It was good. I had a lot of uh, Edwards one, which was uh, excellent. Uh, and they're all good because I've said for many years that uh, American ham masters we you know they have the ability to cure. They have the know how. They're they're you know they're they're masters at it. Uh, but what what has been lacking is the quality of the raw material. And so these people have been joining up with uh, folks like Patrick Martins and trying to. To kind of rectify that and be able to produce a ham that has uh, the same kind of quality uh, in the meat as the highest end uh, European style hams, and, and I have to say they are uh, they are some incredibly uh, delicious things. Um, <clears throat> Where you say, as a side note, that that this ham is much thicker than either the serrano or the prosciutto, it really does affect the preparation. It has a lot to do with the way American hams are hung. American hams typically were designed, uh, even the you know the country cured ones, to be uh, eaten in slices and then uh, briefly cooked, or cooked and then sliced. Uh, and so they wanted to be a little wetter than you would on your average European ham. They're hung uh, in the opposite direction from a normal uh, European ham, and they're not squished flat. And so they have the cushion, that big part of the meat, the cushion area is a, a lot thicker than it would be in um, in a European ham. And what that 
that means is is that you're going to have a, a wetter center typically on that. And so it's going to be more difficult to get a perfect slice out of an American-style ham that way than it would be to get out of a European ham. And you're also, because of the way American hams are hung uh, and, and aged, you're going to get more of a variation in salt level and uh, density uh, and water uh, level between the outside of the meat, <clears throat> especially towards the uh, face, towards where it was cut off of the animal where there's no skin, and the center of the cushion where it's going to be the softest. So it does affect preparation. I'm, it's not better, it's not worse, but it, it, it does affect it. Now, on to your real uh, question here, which is, uh, how do I, uh, well, you already have a boning technique. The best way is to go, uh, F. Dick Cutlery makes a, uh, what looks like a long gouge that you can use, uh, like a tunnel boning thing that you can get in. And that's what uh, a lot of the people use uh, to get the bones out uh, effectively. I have to say that boning a prosciutto and a country ham is the only time in my life I've ever broken a knife, at least that I've ever broken it when it wasn't breaking it on purpose. So, it, you know, they are difficult to bone depending on how uh, old they are, right? Younger one, like seven, eight month old, not going to be a problem, but year, uh, year and a half, it can become a, a kind of a nightmare to bone out and keep in one piece. Assuming you have a good technique to bone out, that take the bone out, you're going to have a hole in the center. And even the professionals here, when they bone it, are not going to uh, take, be able to squish that hole flat. And the reason is uh, it takes an immense amount of pressure uh, to do that. So in uh, prosciutto de Parma, what they'll do is they'll, they'll age it bone in like, like, like God wants you to. They'll remove the bone and then they'll put it into a ham mold. And the ham mold has a, a, a water cooling because otherwise the ham would heat up too much and it would affect the uh, flavor of the ham. And they put it under immense pressure inside of a metal mold that's you know, very well cooled in order to compress it into that ham shape, exclude any oxygen or anything else from the inside of that uh, gap. Uh, I don't think you're going to be able to do that. Uh, <clears throat> I just don't think it's possible. Another problem with, with enclosing that hole is you could be sealing uh, something, and you might want to let it dry out a little more in there, especially on an American ham that can be a little wetter on the inside uh, than uh, European ham. You're also going to want to make sure you cut off any kind of bad areas or taint around that. Now, if you wanted to try, I mean, I, mean, I encourage you to try and tell me what happens. Yes, you could sprinkle some meat glue in that thing, put it uh, between uh, two plates on a hydraulic press, and, uh, and press it f flat. I don't know what kind of results you're going to have. It's not typically something you, you would do. And I just might make this suggestion is that because American hams weren't necessarily cured in order to slice in one whole piece, I would remove the section below the bone and then you just have the section above the bone that you can slice as its own. It's going to have a little a kind of semicircle mark in it, but that's okay. And then the bottom piece, which is a lot tougher anyway, uh, is going to, uh, you know, maybe be served as a separate, uh, separate preparation. Anyway, my thoughts. What do you think, Stas? Uh, that sounds good. Right. Do you want to take a break? It's 24. I don't know. Do I want to take a break? You just want to go all the way through? I'll take one more and then I'll do a break. Uh, okay. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have the person's name. It's unfortunate. But it's another faithful, faithful listener from iTunes and also a big fan of Heritage Radio in general. Big shout out to Heritage Radio. Uh, I have three brining questions. Is there a rule of uh, thumb for the brine, to, uh, brine strength to soak time? I'm looking for a general brine I can customize to accommodate the amount of time I have to brine. Some days I can do an overnight. Some days I want to do an hour soak. Does the addition of herbs or other flavors in a brine come through in the end product? I see many recipes for complex brines with multiple flavor additions. Is this just Showing off, and is there a brine concentration that could reduce the risk of salmonella or other bugs? I refrigerate and cook properly, but am curious. Thanks. Okay, uh, I am embarrassed to say 
this is a subject that uh, I should have researched long, long ago, uh, <clears throat> but uh, have not. Here's the issue with uh, brine strength and soak time. There's a couple things that a brine is doing. Salt, specific, take salt first. Salt is flavoring uh, your meat, right? That's one thing it's doing. And also uh, salt soaking through into the meat is altering the protein structure so that it can uh, hold on to more water when it's cooked and thereby provide more uh, more insurance against overcooking. Now, I've definitely uh, over-brined things, but I, you know, I, I, I haven't done the research. And what I'm saying is, is that I'm going to have to do more research before I can thoroughly answer this question. It's one of the few things that even though I've been doing it a lot and I'm supposed to be a technical-related cook who pays attention to this sort of nonsense, uh, I have literally always done this by uh, making a brine, dipping my finger in it, and tasting it. And uh, I always make my brines pretty much the same, which is uh, make them until they're salty as the ocean. And for chicken or poultry, I then add sugar until I can just barely taste the sweetness and then go. I don't find that other flavors uh, do too much to it, uh, except for they flavor the outside quite effectively. In vacuum bag situations, you can get some permeation in, but uh, not a lot. But um, I promise, Nastasha is writing this down now, uh, for me to do uh, some research. Maybe I'll go look in the modernist cuisine and see what they have to say about it and uh, get back to you on that next week. Right, Nastasha, making a note? Sure. She's pretend typing. By the way, folks, that's Nastasha's pretend typing, right? So uh, I'll tell you when she's actually doing what I'm asking so that I can properly answer you sometime, but uh, that wasn't it. Okay, so with that, uh, let me go to our first commercial break. Call your questions to Welcome back to Cooking Issues. By the way, Jack, uh, I don't know if we're going to get to it, but you had a shout-out for uh, good uh, good interim music. You like that? Anyway, we'll get to it in a minute. Okay. Hello, Nastasha. My name is Jamie, and my research on rotovaps, that's rotary evaporators for all of you not hip to the fact, have led me time and time again to the Cooking Issues blog, which I have not updated in a long time, and I apologize. More on that later. I am looking into using a rotovap for distilling produce from our 72-acre farm. I had a few questions that I was wondering if Dave may answer. Currently, we are looking into buying a larger rotovap for a line of spirits we intended to distill in the near future. Depending on yield, we were looking into producing everything from start to finish without rectifying any existing base spirit i.e. buying neutral spirits uh, made off-site and infusing them with uh, stuff and then redistilling them on the road of that. I understand uh, the equipment will distill alcohol out of a solvent while maintaining the flavors to the truest form, which is true, that's the case. I just want to know how much can we rely on the road of app to get a low wine mash, a low wine is a, a low alcohol uh, product or the first distillation run off of a normal thing, uh, to an 80-proof finished liquor. I'm assuming... 
so 80 proof, 40% finished liquor. Uh, has Dave uh, ever heard of distilling one's own base spirit through the Roto app? I've read that Dave personally buys low-end vodka, sometimes high-end, uh, to pay the taxes uh, and not run into any legal issues. With that aside, could it be done from the mass straight to the Roto app, um, running it through again and again? Uh, thanks, Jamie Oaks from Jamie at TamworthGarden.com. Tamworth Garden. I'd love a garden full of Tamworth pigs, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Be a delicious garden. Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, okay, so here, here's the deal. First of all, <clears throat> even though I do buy uh, pre-made spirits and redistill them uh, and therefore pay the taxes on it, it is still illegal. So it's still not legal for me to do it. Uh, you know, uh, the reason it's uh, illegal is because of tax bases, uh, ta- tax purposes, right? That's the reason that uh, distillation is illegal. And uh, our legal system hasn't figured out a way in most areas to kind of get around that, although things hopefully are changing soon and have been changing in certain places. That said, the laws specifically are written to prevent someone with a 72-acre farm from taking all of their produce on-site, converting it into liquor, and selling it without paying taxes. So if you're going to be doing it, um, either just don't you know, tell anyone that you're doing it uh, or get a permit to do it. Uh, because other, otherwise, like that's exactly the kind of thing that uh, that those those guys are, are looking at. Now, um, I have done uh, I, you know distillation uh, with uh, wine before. I've never distilled anything below about uh, whose starting alcohol content was below about twelve percent. So the the lowest alcohol content thing that I've really ever, I mean, other than water. Right, other than just water-based stuff, um, is about twelve percent, and I was easily able to get uh, brandies well above forty uh, percent uh, on one pass. Period. Bang, and it's because um, it, the way the Rotovap works, uh, you know, when everything's under uh, vacuum, you can get. Um, I, I, you know, it's been a long time since I've researched the curves, but you can get. Uh, it, there's a certain uh, inherent like theoretical reflux rate on the inside, so it doesn't work the same way as with normal distillation with plates, and plus the vacuum shifts everything around in terms of what boils off first, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I have taken – well, let's take port, which I do all the time, like 18 to 20. Put that in, and I'll get, uh, I'll get a, a 100-proof brandy off. No sweat. No sweat. <clears throat> so um, – hundred proof. Sorry. Uh, yeah, hundred proof. So, uh, so yes, that's definitely feasible. Your speeds are going to be quite low because, unlike a normal still, you're going to need to provide. Uh, if you want to keep the temperatures extremely low to not affect the flavors of your fruits, you're going to have to use uh, a cooling power other than tap water. If you're using a cooling power other than tap water, you are going to have to. Um, you're going to have to chill it, and that's going to be really expensive to chill all that stuff down. Alternatively, you can keep your temperatures somewhat higher, right? Uh, and then uh, when your temperatures are higher, then you can use regular tap water or you know, lime water, whatever process, you know, process water, stream water, whatever you have, to chill your rotovap down uh, and keep your margins uh, high enough on your, uh, uh, the temperature between the, the water bath and the, uh, and the cooling water uh, large enough to be able to do a good job. But you have to test to see whether or not the stuff is going to uh, taste the way you want it. Before you invest in a 20 and 30, 30 liter rotary evaporator, I highly, highly recommend you uh, invest in a small rotary evaporator because the process scales up quite well from a small rotovap to a big rotovap. So, you know, invest a couple of grand in a small rotovap or go find someone that has one that you can use so you can see whether you like the procedure before you invest in something as big as a large rotary evaporator.
right? Because there's a lot of uh, – it takes a while to, to get to learn it. Another problem about doing uh, base wines, like you're saying, is that – most rotary evaporators don't have a way to separate heads from tails, and you're going to have a, a big, big problem on this. So what you're going to have to do – I mean I designed a pump for my rotary evaporator that allows me to taste the distillate as it works, as, it, as it's produced. So I can do easy cuts between heads and tails when I'm doing a distillation, right? It makes my life a lot easier, but it's not something that's standardly available. If you need to do that, what you're going to need to do – is over the course of your distillation run on the first pilot run, you're going to have to figure out for X number of uh, mill, you know, milliliters or liters of stuff that I put into the uh, distillation flask, I got to throw away the first X amount. And you're going to do that by opening your system every, you know, every, you know, chunk of time and tasting it to see whether you've gotten rid of the heads and then uh, at the same time you're going to have to start tasting to see when the tails come in and then hopefully that recipe scales from small to large. In my experience it has scaled percentage wise uh, as long as your temperatures are the same your uh, you know your the, the product that you're putting in is the same and the vacuum levels that you use are the same but these are all things that are going to have to be tweaked out uh, so I wish you the best of luck and if you have any more questions please write them in because everybody knows I love a Rotovap uh, did I read the promo yet? No. Today's show is sponsored by Modernist Pantry, supplying innovative ingredients for the modern cook. Do you love to experiment with new cooking techniques and ingredients but hate to overspend for pounds of supplies when only a few grams are needed per application? Modernist Pantry has a solution. They offer a wide range of modern ingredients and packages that make sense for the home cooking enthusiast. And most cost only around five bucks, saving you time, money, and storage space. Whether you're looking for hydrocolloids, pH buffers, or even meat glue, you'll find it at Modernist Pantry. And if you need something that they don't carry, just ask. Chris Anderson and his team will be happy to source it for you. With inexpensive shipping to any country in the world, Modernist Pantry is your one stop shop for innovative cooking ingredients. Fans of cooking issues that place an order of $50 or more, 50 gone up, huh? Yeah. Huh. Uh, fans of cooking issues that place an order of $50 or more before next week's show will get a free home size package of any ingredient of your choice. That's pretty cool. Any ingredient. Nice. Simply use the promo code CI65 when placing your order online at modernistpantry.com and indicate in the comment box what ingredient you would like. Visit modernistpantry.com today for all of your Modernist Pantry cooking needs. 50 bucks though, huh? I guess in exchange they get to get any, any one that they want. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. By the way, Nastasha, have you ever heard of Wolfman Jack? Yeah. Oh, good. I was, I was I was thinking on the way over, like you know, like uh, radio people I used yeah. to listen to when I was a kid, and whether you'd heard of him. If you hadn't heard of him, I was going to be incredibly depressed. Like you're three year old, and I'm nine million years old. You know. Uh, uh, okay, I'm going to go to questions because other, otherwise I'm going to run out of time. I was going to tell a story about uh, about my cherry allergy and my hoping that by getting my tonsils out I could fix it, but how all my hopes were dashed, and I'm incredibly depressed about it. Anyway, uh, Jason Molinari writes in uh, uh, two questions. Recently, some new studies have shown that many or most plastic leach estrogenic chemicals, which have been shown to be harmful to fetal and young mammals, messing with development. This is a particular concern to me, given that I have a 2.5-year-old girl. Uh, I should probably have said two and a half. Yeah, two and a half year old girl, and we often eat sous vide food. I understand the uh, research seems to be incomplete, but you may have access to other articles or studies which I do not. Should I be freaking out, or is this another item blown out of proportion? Uh, and then uh, there's a link to the relevant study, and uh, you'll have to uh, you'll have to excuse me for one minute while I call up said relevant study. Uh, but the relevant study is. Uh, oh no! Please tell me it didn't close it. Okay, it is estrogenic. 
that's a good word to start with anything, right? If you're writing, if you're writing anything, a book, magazine article, anything, start it with the word estrogenic. Most plastic products release estrogenic chemicals, a potential health problem that can be solved. Uh, and this is a fairly recent article, I think, from July of 2011. And uh, look, this article was new to me. I read it this morning, and I read uh, some other uh, articles uh, uh, on this subject. But the point is basically that there's a, a whole class of chemicals called endocrine disruptors that mess with your hormones and can do things like cause uh, early puberty in girls or can uh, have kind of delayed sexual development in, in boys. It just messes you up all around, kind of. Uh, and so as a result of this, many people have stayed away from, for instance, baby bottles containing the ingredient – what's that? Anyway, containing the ingredient uh, BPA, uh, bisphenol A. Um, so <laughs> – so, so this is something that's been uh, kind of bubbling under the surface. People have been worried about certain plastics, but uh, the theory has been that the plastics that don't contain uh, known endocrine disruptors are okay. So what this study did was uh, they took a whole boatload of different plastics and, uh, and basically they sent the researchers over the course of four years out to various supermarkets and food chains purchased both empty and full plastic containers uh, and then subjected them to a bunch of tests to try to see whether they could leach crap out of these things, including microwave heating, including uh, soaking it in alcohol, including soaking it in salt, uh, things like that, different various heating regimes. And uh, unfortunately – and then what they would do is they take the, whatever they uh, did, you know, whatever, whatever the liquid was they used to leach, and they would apply it to see whether or not it bound um, – they have an assay to see – they have an assay for, uh, endo, you know, for estrogen. Um, uh, you know, estrogen, uh, estrogenic products, and they said, "Is there a reaction on this assay that we can see that it, there are uh, um, active components in here that could be endocrine disruptors?" Okay, uh, bad news. I'll give you the bad news. The bad news is, according to this study, uh, many things that you would think are safe, including baby bottles that are labeled BPA-free, in fact, can leach crap out. And even plastics that are free of plasticizers, for instance, polyethylene, can have additives added to the plastics that um, make them release some form of uh, endo- you know, like estrogenically active uh, compound into foods under certain conditions. So that's the bad news. Uh, this is very uh, new research, so I really don't know what to make of it. I looked up uh, some of the other relevant uh, articles on it, um, and uh, you know, there, there's there's just not really uh, enough known. Part of the problem is, is that there's no kind of no no known minimum level at which kind of uh, where this stuff is okay, uh, and you know, and the, and the research is still being done. The good news was I couldn't look over the charts thoroughly and like really digest them, but it looks like things like plastic wrap had fairly low levels compared to other things um, of having um, uh, things leaching out of them. PETG bottles that were uh, free of BPA tended to leach uh, stuff. Um, because the actual monomer itself is uh, is uh, <clears throat> it has some activity, some endocrine disruption activity, and if it's not fully, if it degrades over time, that can that can leach out. Uh, apparently, according to the article, uh, and so I I don't know, I just don't know. Uh, it's kind of uh, it's an interesting subject, and I hope to look uh, into it um, more. 
Um, I was a little upset to find that things that I knew were free of these sorts of uh, um, uh, endocrine disruptors in terms of what the actual makeup of the plastics were when tested uh, had some activity in them. I, I don't know that this stuff's been retested. I got to look into it. Anyway, two, and on a lighter note, can you give me any ideas for some pan sauces that might go with low temperature fish, meat, and poultry? Since it's not cooked in a pan except for a super quick sear, there usually isn't any deglazable fond in the pan. And let's face it, a low temperature fillet of cod can be pretty boring, even if flavorings are used in the bag. Okay, a couple things you do. One, uh, take the bones or whatever else. <coughs> And make a stock if you're doing chicken or doing fish. Uh, you know, well, fish you're not going to brown it, but you know, chicken you brown out the bones, make a stock, reduce it, and make a sauce that way. In fish, typically, what cooks are going to do is they're going to add something that's very high in umami to uh, a finished sauce. That's why a lot of times when these fish came out, you'd see a lot of things with miso sauces, with soy-based sauces, sauces that had a lot of those brown notes and those kind of uh, brown characteristics that you would want that you don't get in those high. Uh, high temperature things but it's true that uh, a plain low temperature fillet of cod can be pretty boring unless it's so low temperature that you haven't killed the worms and the worms are still moving around on the inside of a cod Nastasha, did you know that cod has all sorts of worms in it no. are you ever going to eat cod no. again and, you know whenever students the first time they butcher cod at the at the school or wherever the first time you butcher cod and you see the little worms coming out of it you're like oh my jesus you know what you've been eating cod your whole life we cooked the worms out anyway Speaking of cook the worms out, that reminds me of uh, Bleach the Rabies Out, which is uh, uh, Kent Kirschenbaum, our friend uh, at uh, <coughs> NYU, professor at NYU. His favorite thing that I ever said was Bleach the Rabies Out when I have a new centrifuge. And he was just on Sid the Science Kid. I don't know what that is. Uh, well, it's, uh, if you ha- next time you have a little kid, Sid the Science Kid is like you know a show on the TV that little kids watch. Anyway, cool that Kent's on Sid the Science Kid. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I hope that was a good answer. Is that a good answer? Yeah. Yeah, from uh, Jason Molinari. Okay, um, <clears throat> we have a question in from Matt. How do you think you pronounce that? Hassa? Hass? Hass? Hass. Hass. Okay. I uh, love the show. Use iTunes to listen. In regards to braising jus color, this is, by the way, a response where we said, does anyone else have a good way to get the uh, sauce color? Remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is, this is a response uh, from Matt. He also has a response for uh, good plating ideas, I think. Uh, okay, and then a question. Okay, so uh, in regards to braising uh, color, <coughs> braising sauce color, I learned a technique from uh, Paul Bartolotta, who learned it from Jean uh, Robuchon uh, on refreshing sauces. The technique is good not only for color but flavor as well. Before every service, bring the sauce to a boil uh, and in a separate pot for a red wine sauce, reduce a half bottle of wine along with aromatics and roasted shanks of meat scraps. Or, shank, or scraps of meat. I don't know what shanks of meat scraps. When the wine is very close to being reduced, crank both pots and slowly incorporate the base into the uh, into the reduction. Do this two ounces at a time, and when you're done, the sauce will be very ruby and have all the flavors reinforced. The color will last for around five hours. We did this every service with all of our sauces. Good tip. Good tip. On the topic of fancy presentation for the home cook, and this is a really good tip, by the way. Uh, I hadn't thought of it because we're stupid. That's why. Uh, uh, YouTube some baller chef demos to see how they plate. Uh, FrenchChef.tv has some demos as well, uh, as well as the Alinea slash Next videos. That's a really good idea. So so stupid. Everyone on YouTube now has like famous people doing plating work. Why am I such an idiot? And why didn't you suggest that to me? God, we're useless. Anyway, thanks, Matt. Those are two excellent, a good tip, and a really good idea. Anyway, finally, I have a question. Is there a specific formula for savory ice creams and sorbets? I have formulas for sweet versions where the solid sugars and liquids are balanced. 
adapted from Sebastian Canon, who's from the French Pastry School, our competitor in uh, in what's it called, Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, also seen on Michael Lascanis' blog. Ran into Michael Lascanis the other day at Sambar, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah. It was. His My- it was? Yeah. Well, and he told me it was his birthday. What is it? Happy birthday! He's like, oh, I saw Michael Scott's there. It's his birthday. I know going into the sea, uh, what's going on. You're going to say hello. You're not going to say happy birthday. Nice. So I didn't say happy birthday to the guy. Yeah. Him and his wife, Heather's, the uh, GM at uh, Aldea, George Mendes' restaurant. Anyways, now I feel like a jackass for not saying uh, happy birthday. But uh, I was commenting. His la- You know, it's pastry chef Armageddon right now. <clears throat> uh, Johnny Azzini from Jean-Georges is leaving JG. And Michael Escanis is leaving uh, La Bernardin. And I was like, when's your last day? He's like, he's like, December 30th. I'm like, what are you, a sissy? You can't go all the way to the 31st and finish the whole year? He's like, La Bernardin's closed on New Year's. I was like, oh. Oh. Anyway. Uh, good guy, Michael Escanis. Okay. Uh, all the sorbets and ice cream using this formulation are great. The only thing I've changed is maybe adding um, non-fat uh, milk protein, a.k.a. dry milk, to certain sorbets, although that's going to make them more milky, which is going to make them more like a, like a sherbet, right? Anyway, uh, do most people substitute isomalt for sucrose or just make a yummy base and hit it with uh, liquid nitrogen? Okay, uh, you can't just hit a base with liquid nitrogen and uh, get – a, a really good uh, result. You can get a sort because the sugar is there as a texturizing agent, right? You need that sugar there <clears throat> to get uh, a proper texture. Otherwise, even with liquid nitrogen, it's going to be hard. It's not going to feel right in the mouth. I wouldn't substitute. Uh, I mean, isom- you can substitute isomalt. Uh, some people claim that it gives you the runs if you eat too much, but that's never happened to me. And I've eaten a bunch once just to. T- the reason is you just don't digest it as much. That's why they say that. Uh, I would move to uh, but isomalt. I'm going to have to remember I'm making this up. Uh, it's something like 50, 30 to 50% as sweet as sucrose. So it is substantially less sweet. But uh, glucose syrup is even less sweet than, um, than isomalt. Uh, and I don't know whether it gives you the poops or not. I don't think it gives you the poops, the glucose syrup. So I would go with glucose syrup, which is what you can use or very low DE um, uh, corn, you know, corn base or syrup. You know, everyone says corn syrups, you know. Look, it's it, first of all, if high fructose corn syrup is what's causing uh, the entire world to fall apart, you know whether it is or whether it isn't. Not all corn syrups are high fructose corn syrup. Let's just say that right now. Anyway, so a low DE, in other words, non-sweet corn syrup, would be the way I would go as opposed to using um, isomalt. Uh, although I have used isomalt uh, as well, and it works. You just need something that has the water binding properties of uh, although isomalt. Yeah. Anyway, of uh, and the texturizing properties of sugar. Otherwise, the texture is not going to be right. Uh, anyway, uh, I'll try to find some recipes, or, or if you if you're having problems uh, working out a formulation, just give us another holler, and I'll uh, call one of my buddies and figure out the exact numbers. Okay. Question in from uh, Ellie. It, this is a, you know, we remember we had a problem pronouncing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's a pronunciation guide now. Mm-hmm. Ellie, like Eddie, but with an L. Okay. Uh, I am now on my second immersion circulator unit from eBay in the last three years. I'm thinking I should have spent the money on a new one from PolyScience instead. Yeah, you know what? I think I've said this a million times. I used to I used to buy circulators constantly off of eBay and then spend all my time keeping them running. And the first time I got a new – excuse me – Something wrong with my face. A new polyscience. I was like, "Wow, this is what it's like to not be a d bag." Anyway, uh, it w- what? Right, right. No. Anyway, Nastasha's tapping her watch, meaning I have to hurry. Um, 
Yes, you probably should have. Anyway, the one that uh, the one that's now the one I have now is a very nice looking digital Lauda with barely any cosmetic damage, and it holds the temperature perfectly. For all intents and purposes, it looks barely used. I've had it for maybe two months now, and it used to work almost silently, uh, just humming along. Now it seems to be developing a slight grating noise. Nothing very noisy or terribly annoying, but I remember you mentioning that some immersion circulators develop that noise after long term use. The problem is, I do not remember if you said it was something that could be fixed with some WD forty, or is a problem that will get worse and worse until the machine is unusable in a month or two. Any help is much appreciated. Okay, first of all, I don't know which Lauda you have. I used to buy Laudas all the time. They looked awesome, and they looked barely used, and they all died. They all died on me. Um, what died on them was the Triac in the ones that I'd use, uh, most of them. I had some where the motor went, uh, where the inside, the triac, would burn out, so it wouldn't, wouldn't heat anymore. It would still run. The kind of noise you're getting depends. You have to make a decision, uh, and the new loudest probably that doesn't happen to, uh, or newer. Um, <clears throat> you have to figure out whether it's a bearing noise, which it sounds like, like it's a bearing noise, hard to describe, or, or whether it sounds like the shaft is rubbing on something. If the shaft is rubbing on something, try to bend the bottom a little bit so that the shaft no longer touches any metal parts, and that should stop it, and then you're good to go for a long time. If it's the bearing making the noise, then you're kind of in a world of hurt eventually. I have kept them running for months and months and months by spraying with WD-40, but remember, WD-40 ain't food grade, so you don't want to do it uh, too much, and it's very easy to test. Hit the bearing with a little WD-40, and if the squeaking and scraping goes away, then it's your bearing. If not, then the shaft is touching on something. Hold on, what's Jack telling us? Take the caller. Oh, we have a caller? Caller, you are on the air. Hey, Dave and Nastasha. This is uh, Sarah Beth's dad. Hey. Hey, how you doing? Week. Nice. Good. Did yeah. we answer, did we answer yeah. the question or no? Did it work? Uh, you did. You sure did. We ended up, uh, so we ended up putting the meat in a uh, boiling water. So now we joke we're going to go uh, boil up some steaks for some friends. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So um, we got three different cuts of steak from the same buy. Uh, so it was pretty, con- you know, hopefully the marbling would stay consistent. And then we put it in a double boiler. So that way the meat didn't hit the bottom of the pan. Right. And then got, got, a, uh, got a probe, uh, just one of the instant read thermometers, that only registered at the tip. And then we put that horizontally into the meat. And um, numbers were almost dead on with the with the four times, and we haven't we haven't attempted the uh, the equations yet. But uh, we downloaded the app and all that stuff, so we're playing around with that right now. And and That's your your numbers your numbers uh, jived with the application's numbers roughly, or no, no, with that with that um, roughly four times. You know the 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 inch was just about roughly, you know, equal to, you know, when you add in the, the inch to the inch and a half to the two inches, it was like a pretty straight straight line with the times. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. <coughs> wow, it, so, shouldn't, it shouldn't be straight, though. It shouldn't be linear. Yeah, well, that's what it, that's what it graphed out at. That's why we're going we're gonna to break out that app and play with that a little bit and see, you know, because it, cause it um, you know, that's what it showed. But like you were saying, it shouldn't be linear. No, it so, should not be linear. No, every yeah, every double yeah. every doubling of thickness should be a factor of four. Yeah, yeah. So that's why we're going to break out the thing and see if you know if maybe something was wrong in our experiment or or just run the math on it and double check it. Uh, that's so. an, that's an expensive cut to boil, huh? Oh, you're <laughs> telling me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're not going to eat it, get like eye of round or something like that because it's got very low uh, fat content in it and it's a lot cheaper. Tastes bad when, okay. it, when it's cooked a long time because it goes livery and it doesn't have any fat. So it's not my favorite cut to eat. But uh, if you're going to be boiling it, 
I mean, did, how did it taste after you boiled it? Uh, well, yeah, I could have used it for my shoes. <laughs> it was pretty, pretty tough. <laughs> pretty tough. You know, but what I did just for grins, I put it in a hot pan and I, you know, we, we seared it with some olive oil and garlic and all that, try to dress it up a little bit. But right. yeah. yeah, once you boil it, yeah. once you boil it, suckers boiled. Uh, one last yeah. question. How, um, what was the, uh, like, uh, okay, let's say thickness is the Z dimension. How large was the X and Y? Oh, as far as the, the size of it? Yeah. Um, they were fairly consistent. So the, if we, we, we took the steak and we cut it in half. So it was like two, two pieces for each size. And they were about four inches by four inches. Okay. So you know, a, but it was, it was circumference, but it was like a slab. Right. But slab a, a, a lot bigger, a lot bigger uh, X and Y than Z. Yes. Yeah, okay, good, yes. good. Yeah, yeah. 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 So approx- yeah. approximating yeah. a slab. Good, good, good. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm surprised it came out uh, as a linear uh, relationship. I'm going to – you're going to have to, like, fill me in. You have to do, do some tests with that app. See what it re- tells you yeah. should happen. That's what we're going to do. And the, and the other problem was, you know, we only had, like, what, two pieces for each thickness. So we didn't have a lot of data points to graph either. Right. So yeah, may, yeah, may, I, may I recommend in the future a cheaper cut? <laughs> yes, <laughs> duly noted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But my daughter loves your podcast. We were we were listening to it on the on the way to uh, school this morning. Oh wow! So yeah, yeah. And and don't worry, I pre-screen most of them for the <laughs> for the cursing. So we try not. Well, you know, we really we try not to do it now, especially because you know we we now uh, label as a family show. You know, surprisingly, in the real life, I'm the one you have to worry about, but on the air, Nastasha is the one you have to worry about. Isn't that strange? Uh huh. And me. I'm not saying any. I'm not saying anything. Anybody that's called the hammer, I'm I'm just going to be quiet. <laughs> All righty. Well, uh, well. Listen. Thanks so much for calling. Do you have a, 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 sure. se- a separate question or no? No, no. I was just calling to let you guys know that we we heard it and we uh, we did the thing. So. Uh, We'll play around with that app and uh, let you know what happened. Cool. Thanks so much. Yeah. All right. All right. Have a good one. Bye. All right. Uh, One question we had uh, that I'm going to actually – I know I'm going to postpone to the next one from Howard is, with the holiday season winding up, I was wondering – and the reason is going to become apparent. uh, I was uh, wondering if you had any suggestions for kitchen gadget equipments uh, and gifts with the holiday season. If you could include some things from a variety of price ranges, that would be great. And I figured this would be a good thing for us to actually discuss on next week's show and to give anyone who's listening an opportunity to write in with what they think good idea would be. What do you think? That's a good idea. Smart. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have my ideas, which, but you know, I can, uh, you know, I could do do more. Uh, another thing, just a quick in. Uh, Kevin writes in, says, "Hope all is well." Just want to drop a quick line, and let you know that carbonating vodka with a soda stream system works quite well. Uh, and he's attached pictures. Uh, and I, I didn't get a chance to look at the pictures yet, but he's, he said, "I use the same tubing I use for an aquarium pump. I have connected to my uh, do-it-yourself uh, immersion circulator." Um, and he recommends using a soda stream to vent out trapped air before pressurizing for the first time to get the pressures high. This is a technique I've advocated for a while if you have a soda stream of putting an extender tube on the end of it so that you can actually carbonate with a smaller amount of liquor uh, and actually have the tube sit below the level. Because uh, if you don't do that, you're not going to get good carbonation. If you, if, you, if you fill it up high enough, you're, uh, you're, the problem is it's going to overflow when it foams because vodka wants to foam a little bit after it carbonates. But I will say this also, uh, Kevin. Keep tuned. We're going to have uh, – and I'll talk more about it, but I have some new carbonation stuff coming out that's going to uh, it's gonna blow everyone's mind, right? Yeah. going to blow everyone's mind. How much time do I have left? What? Yes. All right. So listen, I have some questions in. For instance, 
Uh, I have another question in uh, from Ellie about alginate. I'm going to get to that one next time. Uh, Colin wrote in with some uh, typical Colin kind of stuff, and we'll get to that uh, next time. And Kangber wrote in, actually, after he got to speak to us. And by the way, I was giving you know, uh, Jack, he's the one that says that he no longer fast-forwards because he enjoys your choice of Segway music so much. It was an awesome email. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah so uh, Jack says thank you. And uh, I'm going to get more to what you wrote about other than that next week because today we're out of time, and this has been Cooking Issues. Vicious, vicious vodka 